before I read the passage that I'm going to read, I just want to make a few comments about these verses. Um, if you're visiting with us, uh, or if you're new maybe to the Christian faith, I, I'm going to read some words. Actually, this might be true even if you're not new to the Christian faith. You've been in the church for a long time. I'm going to read some words that are going to be startling to you. And this is one of the passages in the Bible that people in our culture will read and say, that's why I'll never be a Christian. It's because the Bible has passages like this one. And so it raises the question of why would we as a community be open, you know, open to having our spiritual lives, having our spiritual community shaped by a text that many people will find so offensive. And well, uh, the answer to that is we are a church, a community of people who believe that we are lost without Jesus. And so when we come to the Bible, we're coming from a posture of, I don't know how to manage my own life. And I should assume that when I read the Bible, there are going to be things in there that offend me. Because if the Bible never offends me or says anything different than what I already think, then it's just confirming what I already believe. It's not changing me. And um, so as a church, um, we are a church that is not comfortable saying that the Bible is wrong. This is the word of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. So we believe the Bible is true, but we also recognize that it is a process over a lifetime that we come to see that the Bible is not only true, but it's also good and beautiful. And there may be texts where we say, you know, it's God's word, so I believe it. I'm still coming along to see the goodness and beauty of it. For some of us, this is one of those passages. It's kind of one of those passages for me. And uh, so, um, but as a church, we don't skip anything. That's a part of being a church of integrity, a church of honesty and authenticity, is we're going to say really what the Bible says. This is the Bible that we believe, and we're not going to skip over it. We're going to face it. We're going to look at it. We're going to wrestle with it and try to make sense of it. And so that's our goal this morning. I want to invite you into that process invite you to have an open heart to hear what God might say to us from these words. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2, and then we're going to skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought, uh, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory 
for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And skipping to chapter 14, verse 29, it says, Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, we had a sermon last week on that first part of 1 Corinthians 11, so there's a number of things I'm not going to address in this sermon. If you weren't here last week, you're welcome to go back and you say, well, what did that text mean? And maybe I hit on that last week, and uh, you can find that sermon online. But uh, let's pray to the Lord as before we talk about this text together. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, uh, we thank you that you speak truthfully to us in your holy word. And it's with humble hearts that we come and ask that you would teach us, that you would bring light and clarity to this text and to our church community. Guide us and uh, show us your goodness, your love. And uh, also make us a people who um, treasures your word. So um, I pray for anyone here that might find these words troubling. And Lord, give us patience to uh, hear what you might say to us, and give us grace in our Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. We are going to be talking this morning about uh, the topic of women in ministry, and this is an important topic for our church. Our church is what's called a complementarian church, which means that uh, we believe that God has made men and women both in the image of God, equal in dignity and worth, but also that men and women have been made in, in a complementary manner, that they are different and fit together and support one another and build one another up. And one significant application about being a complementarian church is we're a church that only has male elders and deacons in our church. I'm going to explain a little bit about that later in the sermon. But what can happen in a church like ours is because the Bible says that these two offices should be filled by men, that one teaching can bleed over into the culture of the whole church where it, there's a general sense that kind of men are more important and men make the important decisions and men do the important ministry and women are kind of, you know, they're, you know, 
to do less important things, or maybe have tea parties, and they're not really in the front lines and doing the work alongside the men, or they're only working with the children, or they're only working with other, other women. And so two years ago, our session, which is the eight elders who lead our, our church, began a discussion about women in ministry and thinking about how do we prevent that kind of error from happening in our church. And at that time, I wrote a paper about the, what the Bible teaches about women in ministry, and uh, we gave that to the Elder, the wives of our elders, and to Jesse Clausen, who was our women's ministry leader, who said, hey, will you read this paper and then give us feedback about how can we improve our culture as a church? And they gave us a list of things uh, that we've been thinking about, we've been talking about over the last couple of years. And then last April, the Sunday after Easter, I gave a sermon on women in ministry. If you're interested in this topic, you, you want to go back and listen to that sermon. This sermon is building on that one. So there's a lot of things that I said there that are kind of assumed already. And that sermon was about how the first and primary eyewitnesses to uh, Jesus' resurrection were women and how important uh, female disciples of Jesus are in the Bible and in God's mission. And a broad rule of thumb that we have said as a session in our church is that a woman in our church can do anything an unordained man can do. It is a priority for us uh, to have women serving on the leadership teams of all our areas of ministry, not just women and children, but in worship, in disciple making, in deeds of love, to the community, in church planting, and in missions. And so this sermon is part two of that process where we will be talking about some specifics about how our church is going to be changing a few things so that our practice more closely reflects uh, the principles taught in the Bible. And so we're going to do that by looking at this passage of 1 Corinthians. Now, you notice that I, we looked at two different passages in this, uh, in this text, one from 1 Corinthians 11 and one from 1 Corinthians 14. And you, say, you might say, well, why do we take these two passages that aren't next to each other? And in uh, this section of 1 Corinthians, from 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, Paul uses a literary device called a chiasm. And what a chiasm is used throughout the Bible, in a chiasm, the first passage of a section of Scripture and the last passage are in parallel. They talk about similar topics. So in this Chapter 11 talks about men and women and prophesying. And then chapter 14 talks about men and women and prophesying. So they're in parallel. And actually, if you look at the passage just inside those two bookends, the, the same thing happens. You know, uh, Paul talks about when you come together for the Lord's Supper. And then he uses that same language again in chapter 14. When you come together for a hymn or for a lesson. And then you go into the passage inside of those and the same thing happens. In chapter 12, there's a a chapter on spiritual gifts, and then he repeats it in chapter, the first part of chapter 14, spiritual gifts. And then at the center of this whole kind of concentric teaching is the great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, which is, is the, the most important, the kind of hallmark of the whole section. And so what that tells us, the reason we're looking at these two passages together is because according to the chiasm, they're in, they're in parallel. And they help us understand each other. And so this morning, we are going to explain uh, two uh, simple questions. What does this passage mean? There are a ton of questions. You had probably a ton of questions. I was reading it. So that's going to take a while to try to understand. And second, how do we apply the insights of this passage to our church and uh, to our community? So um, I'll just give you a heads up. This is a longer sermon than usual. There's a lot to say. So let's get to it. 
First question, what does this passage mean? And specifically, there are three topics that present difficulties for us. There's the question of head coverings. There's the question of women being silent in church. And then there's the question of the angels. You, maybe you saw that little mention of angels. What are the angels doing there? And so uh, we are going to look at each of those and ask, how do we understand each of these? So the first question is, how do we understand head coverings? Now, it's not particularly clear what a head covering is in this passage. Uh, most people understand a head covering is either a veil or you know, a piece of cloth that a woman would have wore on her hair. But a Richard Hayes, who's a New Testament scholar at Duke, he's written one of my favorite commentaries on 1 Corinthians, has pointed out that head coverings for men and women were not a prominent part of Greek or Roman culture in the first century. And he also says that there's a clue in here that maybe this isn't talking about a piece of cloth in verse 15, where it says, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her as a covering. The woman's hair is a head covering. And what Hayes argues is having your head covered didn't mean necessarily you had a piece of cloth on your head. But it meant simply kind of wearing your hair up in a certain, like, hairstyle. It's a hairstyle. Now, we're going to come back to that. But there are a lot of, uh, lots of proposed rationales. Why is Paul talking about this? Why does he think women who are praying and prophesying in the church should have their heads covered or have their hair put up? Some people say he's trying to accommodate to Roman culture or to Jewish culture. Some people say he's challenging Roman culture or challenging religious practices of, you know, different uh, pagan cults in Corinth. One thing that all commentators say about the head coverings in this passage is that they are culturally situated into the customs of first century Corinth. And that's not just modern Commentators, John Calvin from the 16th century says the same thing. This is about customs in first century Corinth. And so the reason uh, women don't wear head coverings in our church is because we say this was a custom that is foreign to our modern culture. It doesn't apply to us. Now, some of you hear that and you say, okay, so some in the Bible is foreign to our culture. We can just throw it out. <laughs> There's a lot of foreign things to our culture in the Bible. Why aren't we throwing them all? It seems like every week we come to church and we read something that's like, that seems foreign. Why are we trying to apply that to our, uh, our community? I think that's a really important question. And a good answer to it comes from the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession says that whenever you have a confusing passage of Scripture, the way you interpret the confusing passage is by looking at more clear passages. And that tells us that all the most important doctrines in the Bible are always repeated. They're never just said in one place. They're said over and over and over again. And so you could take out one of the books of the Bible and you say, well, we still believe in the Trinity because we find it all over the Bible. And, um, but if it says something just once, it gives us more reason to think that that thing is culturally situated in the church, the church in Corinth that's being addressed in this passage. And in this case, this is the only passage in the Bible that speaks about head coverings. And so as a result, we're not going to be overly dogmatic about a topic like that. We don't know much about it. But then you say, well, does this passage then have nothing to offer us, nothing to teach us? Why didn't we just skip over it? Um, I think this passage is actually fascinating. I think it's filled with interesting insights. And so let me give you one example of that. If you look at verse 4, 
It says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife, you know, or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is, a dis- is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. That's interesting. Paul in this verse identifies three kinds of hairstyles for women, right? There's the head uncovered. It's kind of the hairs down. There's the shaved head. And then there's the head covered. You know, the hair's kind of put up in some hairstyle. And, you know, I've asked several women, actually, over the last few weeks, just about the meaning of a woman's hair. And a couple of people actually told me, they say, you know, my hair has something to do with, like, how I'm doing. You know, maybe, like, something's going on. You know, something happens in my life. You know, I'm going to chop my bangs off. And it's like, I'm going to make a statement. And, and it's, it's, it's somehow a representation of, like, my identity and who I am and how I'm fitting into the world and how I'm dealing with the world that I'm fitting into. And actually, there's, uh, I came across an article that just came out a few weeks ago in the New York Times called Buzzed, The Politics of Hair. And it was talking about the many kind of public women in our culture who shave their heads. You know, the, one, the, the most recent was the girl at the school in Florida where the school shootings were, who's been, you know, very, uh, you know, um, vocal about, uh, you know, limiting avail- availability of guns. And uh, she has a shaved head. And they're asking, you know, what's the, you know, what does your shaved head mean? And throughout this article, it talks about these other women who are famous, who've shaved their heads. One of them was, was Rose McGowan, who's a, uh, an actress. Um, and she had also come out about the Harvey Weinstein uh, sex abuse scandals. And, and um, she talked about why she had shaved her head. And this is, this is what she said. I broke up with you, the collective you, the societal you. I broke up with the Hollywood ideal, the one that I had a part in playing. And it, um, it was a way, she wrote, as a way of, of rejecting the ideal version of a woman that is sold to you by every actress in every hair commercial, telling you, this is the secret to being beguiling, the secret to getting a man to want you. And what she's saying is basically, here, here are these two options for me as a woman. I can either have my hair down and pursue this Hollywood ideal as a sex symbol, or I can reject my culture and I can shave my head in defiance. And in some ways, I think women sometimes feel these two options of I'm either going to be a sex object or I'm going to be an outcast. And the thing that's striking about it, I think we sympathize with Rose McGowan, but she is still being defined by her culture either way, right? If she's a sex object, she's being defined by Hollywood. If she is in defiance of Hollywood, she's still taking her cues from Hollywood. And so how do you be a woman whose identity, who you are, is defined not by Hollywood, it's not by our culture, but by somewhere else? And I think there is an amazingly strange alternative to the sex object or the shaved head, the woman of defiance, in verse 10. This is what Paul says. And this is why a wife or a woman ought to have a, a symbol of authority on her head. And that verse actually literally in Greek reads this way. That is why a woman ought to have authority over her head. She should have control 
jurisdiction. She should have authority over her hair, this thing that is representing who she is. And the woman in Christ, with her head covered, has said, I'm not a sex object, nor do I live in defiance of being a woman with, with a shaved head. I have power over my head, over my hair. And I think these verses are actually charged with a kind of dignity that the women in our culture are longing for. And the woman who has authority over her head in this passage is the woman who is praying and prophesying. It's a woman who knows that she is a beloved child of the living God. She takes her cues, not from Hollywood, not from the culture, but from who God says she is. She is a joint heir with Christ and a member of the kingdom of God. And so when we ask, what, you know, what is the meaning, the significance of these head coverings, I think on the one hand it does mean modesty. It's a rejecting of a woman's place in society as a sex object. But it's also about a woman rooting what it means to be a woman in Christ. I become a woman by knowing Jesus, by knowing the love of God the Father. I think there's one other meaning of the head coverings uh, that I want to point out also in this passage. You Notice in verse 13, where this is a really strange verse. Paul says, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? He says, nature teaches us that men have short hair and women have long hair? Like, it seems like you got, it depends on the haircut you get, not by nature. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people try to deal with this. Actually, James Van Nord sent me this academic article about Hippocrates. Hippocrates was the... Um, a Greek physician who is kind of the father of medicine. And he actually has this whole discussion about hair. And this guy was saying, this is what Paul, what Paul was thinking here. Hippocrates says that, you know, our hair is, this is what they believed in ancient Greece, that our hair is hollow. And forgive me for this, but he says, men make their semen in their brains. That's what Hippocrates says. And so a man, if he has long hair, his hair is going to get filled with semen and he won't be able to procreate. And so he has to keep it short so the semen goes to the right place. And then the women are supposed to have long hair because they're supposed to receive the, you know, the seed and they need hair that, receive, you know, that has lots of space to receive what the man has to give. I, I need to tell James, I'm not sure that that's what Paul thought. But there is something about I think what by nature means is how does a culture view men and women? And, you know, this is generally what marks out someone as a man. This is generally what marks someone out as a woman. There's a lot of gray area in there that we shouldn't just totally erase those things. But we should, you know, somehow, in some ways respect those things. And so it's a matter about the distinctions um, between being uh, male and being female. And so how do we understand head coverings? Well, um, even though these verses are culturally situated, I think three principles that we can draw from them are that these women who are leading a congregation in, in prayer and in prophesying have a modesty about them. They have an identity in Christ, an identity that's not defined by the culture around them. And they have maintained a distinction in their genders of, of being a woman, okay? So that's the first question. How do we understand head coverings? Second question how do we understand the statements in this passage about women being silent? And I'll start with, you know, one puzzle 
that many people have pointed out about this section of 1 Corinthians, there seems to be a contradiction here. So if you look at chapter 11, verse 5, where it says, but every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So Paul is expecting that in the worship service there are women who are praying, they're prophesying, they're you know, speaking, they're you know, involved in the worship service. But then he seems to say something different in chapter 14, verse 34, where he says, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. So first he says they should pray and prophesy. And then he says they shouldn't speak. Which is it? Well, I think the key to understanding these verses is both to understand prophecy and second, to understand the context of chapter 14. Okay, so first, a few words about prophecy. Prophecy is when God is addressing his people through a person, and it's a revelation of God's truth that should be accompanied with the kind of authority that says something like, thus says the Lord. So when a prophet speaks in the Bible, their words are equivalent to the weight that we give to the Bible, that this is the authoritative word of God. Now, it's very common in the church for people, you know, when you read the Bible, you're like, yeah, there's prophets all over the place. I read in the Old Testament, there's prophets. I read in the New Testament, the book of Acts, there's prophets. And so there's an expectation that God always has prophets that are just speaking all the time and that we should have prophets speaking all the time. But if you read the Bible carefully, you'll find that the periods where prophets are speaking are concentrated periods of time where God is doing something new among his people. So, for example, if you read the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Kings goes over a time period of 400 years, and 40 percent of those books, though, were devoted to the lifetimes of Elijah and Elisha. This is just basic, and they overlap. So you're talking maybe 50 years, and they had this school of prophets. And so you might read First and Second Kings and think there's all kinds of prophets, but actually those prophets were only really active in these two lifetimes. Similarly, when you come to the New Testament, or the book of Joel has a prophecy about when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And this is what Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dreams dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. It's this beautiful, I mean, you might say egalitarian vision of men and women together prophesying and speaking this revelation of, of who Christ is. And that's precisely what you have happening in Corinth. You have men and women that the Spirit has been poured out on, they're prophesying. But another thing to notice about the Bible, 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's earlier letters. And he talks a lot about prophecy here. If you look later in Paul's life, at his later letters, at a book like 2 Timothy, where he's now passing on to the next pastor, the next generation of Christians, and the church has begun to be established, there's almost nothing about prophecy. He never tells Timothy to be prophesying. What does he say to Timothy? He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. The, the revelation of who Christ, Christ is has been spoken and given to the church. And um, now there are leaders, in, uh, and, the, and the leaders in the early church were not the prophets, but they were elders. You know, you look at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. It's the elders who come together to make decisions about the church. The churches that Paul planted in the Mediterranean in Acts were all led by elders. 
And what this tells us was that God's communication through prophecy was for a season, was concentrated to these early decades of the church before the New Testament had been written. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the book of Hebrews says, you know, God spoke to us formerly through prophets, but now he's spoken to us through his son. And so when the revelation of God's son, Jesus, has come, that's what all the prophets were talking about. And now we know about Christ, so there's no more prophecy. And so our job now is to guard the gospel that the prophets have revealed to us in the New Testament. Now, by the way, I just want to make a side comment. Some of you may have been in churches where you say, you know, I met people who said they had the gift of prophecy and they spoke like a really powerful word that was really meaningful in my life. And are you saying that wasn't really the Holy Spirit speaking through them? And what I'm saying is actually a lot of what happens in a lot of churches where people, you know, say, hey, I have this Bible verse for you. And, you know, I've been thinking about you. I've been praying for you. I want to say this to you. A lot of that is the Holy Spirit working through God's people. What I'm saying is we just, I don't think we should call that prophecy. In the Bible, it says if you're a prophet and you're wrong, you should be stoned in the Old Testament. I mean, it's a very serious thing. And there is something more like people have a a gift of discernment. They have a gift to be able to speak into people's lives. And we just wouldn't wouldn't say that that's, that's what prophecy is. What does all this tell us about this passage? Well, it helps us to understand the question, what was Paul restricting when he said that women should not speak but should keep silent? And the answer to that comes in chapter 14, verse 29, where it says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And the context for Paul's statement about women being silent is when all these prophets are speaking and then there's a time of evaluation. There are these others, there were some in the church who were assigned to guard the doctrine of the church and listen to the prophets and say, you know, that's from the Lord. That's consistent with the gospel. That's wrong. Don't let that guy talk anymore. You know, and, and they were guarding the church. And it was during this authoritative guarding that Paul says, the women need to let these who've been entrusted with that responsibility do the guarding. Now, in our church, we have elected elders who play that role of guarding the doctrine and teaching of our ministry. They are the ones who evaluate that the teaching in our church is sound, that it's according to the Bible. And, you know, we talked earlier about how the way that you know something is not just a cultural thing in the Bible, but it's normative for all time, is that it's repeated. And that's one thing that we see in the Bible is that men being elders in the church, all the men, all the elders of the Old Testament were men. And then Jesus comes. We know Jesus is very countercultural. You know, he had women as his disciples, and he really esteemed women. And yet when it came time for him to appoint his 12 disciples, they're all men. And then the Apostle Paul, when he plants churches in, in the book of Acts, and the elders are leading those churches, they're all men. It's a repeated pattern that tells us this is not culturally situated. Over the period of centuries, God has consistently said this. And that is why, as unpopular a view as that is in our culture, that's our commitment. We need to do what God's word says as a church. But you might say, okay, why, why though? Why men as elders? I think one possible answer to that is that the role of an elder is confrontational. And when there is immorality or there's false teaching in the church, it involves a confrontation. And, you know, it's like when an intruder comes into your house. Intruder comes into your house. Who should be confronting the intruder? The man, 
Um, and I, it's not fun. <laughs> it means giving sermons like this one, where it's like, this is not a, you know, who wants to get up and say something that's unpopular in our culture? It's the elders have to say, this is what we stand by as a church. And, uh, and so God says, men in the church need to do that work of guarding the teaching. And so what these verses tell us is that there were women who were participating in the leading of the congregation in worship through prayer and prophecy, prophecy, but prophesying is no longer a part of the church's worship like prayer certainly is. And there were some portions of the service restricted to certain men who guarded the official doctrine. Okay? And this leads to one last question we're going to ask. Okay, so we, that's how we answer, how do we understand the women being silent? It's just about this one area of guarding the doctrine of the church. So we said, how do we understand the head coverings? How do we understand women being silent? The third question is, how do we understand the angels? And maybe you pick that up there in verse 10, where it says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Of course, you know, because of the angels. And we are like, what? I don't get it. I don't get the connection. What, what about what angels? How did they get in here? And uh, he obviously assumes that we know something about some angels. And uh, what he's probably talking about is that Paul understood that when a Christian congregation came together around God's word, they came together for the sacrament. They had in essence entered into heaven or heaven had come to them. And that they were now, that we are now, in the midst of angels, worshiping with angels. Actually, this verse I'll just read from Hebrews 12 right now says that we're in the presence of Christians who've died and gone to be in glory who are worshiping God. We are with them. Listen to these words from Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven into God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Writer of Hebrews has a really different view of what we're doing right now than we often do. You know, we say, hey, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to get some teaching. I'm going to sing some songs. This says, no, you have come to the presence of the King, the Almighty. And it's like this great processional act. And that's why, you know, there's this orderliness to our worship. And what that tells us is that when we read the Bible and we have a sermon, it's not just some guy getting up and saying, let me share some thoughts with you. It's God, the King, is addressing us from his holy word. And so there is a gravity to what's happening here. And that's why in the very end of that passage in verse 14, his kind of conclusion, Paul says, but all things should be done decently and in order. You're in the presence of angels, the host of heaven. You know, you've come before the king. And there should be a reverence and an orderliness. That's why we have an order to our worship. There's an orderliness that we are approaching God's throne. And so I think that helps us also understand what's happening in a worship service. So I want to summarize. If you take last week's sermon, last week we talked about gender and um, the symbolic meaning of male and female in the Bible. And then this week's sermon about head coverings, about women being silent, about angels. A few takeaways. First, I think these passages tell us that men and women should both actively be leading in the worship service. Second, 
Men and women are both symbolic parts of God's creation, and so they should remain distinct in their appearance to honor the integrity of their symbolic genders of male and female. Third, there are some areas of the worship service that should be restricted to ordained men. And fourth, the worship service should be seen as a majestic encounter with the living God in the company of an invisible host of angels and should reflect the decency and order that goes with such an occasion. Now, those four statements, I want you to also know, they didn't just come from this passage. We just are using this passage because we're in 1 Corinthians to draw them out, and it's an interesting passage. These are in other places around the, the Bible, okay? I think the Bible speaks to all these things repeatedly. And so this leads to our second question, not just, okay, it's how we understand the text. Now the second question is, how are we going to apply these principles into our church and as I mentioned, our session, our elders have been discussing this question over the past two years, and Brandon Ellis, who's one of our elders, has drafted two papers, one of which talks about how we want to implement some of the theology we've been talking about into our context. And actually, both these papers are available in the lobby on your way out. You can grab those. You can bring them home, read them, talk about them. If you have any questions about these, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of our elders. We'd love to talk to you about it. But there are two resolutions in those papers that I want to spend uh, some time explaining, okay? The first resolution is that we are going to be including more women and men in the leading of our worship service. That's the change that's happening. And um, the active participation of both men and women leading the worship service, it comes from this passage. The passage tells us we should be doing that. Now, um, one of the issues that the wives of our elders pointed out in our uh, discussion two years ago is that they said, you know, okay, you as a, your elders are saying that a woman can do anything that an unordained man can do. There are some inconsistencies in our practice during the worship service, one of which is, you know, we have men who are not ordained who help serve communion, and we don't have women helping to serve communion, also taking the offering. said, that doesn't seem consistent. You guys better take that back and think about that. And, um, and so, ha, um, so how do we reflect the symbolic differences of men and women and the importance of the ordained offices of elder and deacon while also including more men and women in the leading of our service? And so Brandon's solution, which I think is brilliant, was to observe that our liturgy is a dialogue between God and the congregation. You know, so when you come into church, the first thing we do is we have a call to worship. It's God saying to us, I'm calling you to worship me. And then we respond by praying and singing these songs and praising God and saying he's, he's great. And then we confess our sins to the Lord. And then he responds to us by assuring us of his grace and the assurance of pardon. And then we respond with it by greeting one another and passing that love to one another. And then we sing this song of ascent. And then God addresses us from the Bible and through the sermon. And he teaches us. And then we respond to that by saying the Apostles' Creed. And we say, we believe the gospel. And then we pray these prayers for the church and the world, and we give our offering. We're offering our lives to God for his service. And then he says, oh, you're going to go serve me? Well, you're going to need strength. And so he brings us to his table, and he feeds us at his table. And then we respond by praising him with the doxology, and then he responds by, by uh, speaking the benediction over us, a word of blessing. And so God gets the first word, and God gets the last word. It's a dialogue back and forth. And so the way that we want to reflect the complexity of the Bible is to say that the portions of the service that represent God addressing us 
should be done by ordained men in the offices of elder and deacon. And the portions that represent the congregation responding to God should be led by gifted men and women of the congregation. So what that means is there's one portion that is going to be limited, one change, is that we're going to have communion. This is God feeding us, is going to be served by elders and deacons in our church. What's going to open up, the prayer at the beginning, prayer of adoration, the leading of songs, the confession, the uh, Apostles' Creed, the saying of the Apostles' Creed, the prayers for the church and the world, the leading of authoring, all of those things are going to be opened up to women and men and uh, in our congregation. And so, um, and so uh, over the next couple months, uh, we're going to be doing some training, some transitioning of our service to reflect these resolutions. I'm uh, pretty excited about this, and, but um, you might hear all this and say, wow, why all the fuss, you know, the long sermon, and are we overthinking this? Is this really that big a deal that, you know, we're going to let women pray in church? Shouldn't that be obvious? And I, let me just say, the question of gender is a major question in our culture. That's why we're dealing with it carefully, thoughtfully. And um, C.S. Lewis wrote an article, I, I think it was in the 40s, addressing the question the Anglican church, the Anglican church was thinking about having women priests. And he wrote an article about that. And what Lewis says, he says, I think that that idea is, is absolutely rational. I think it makes total sense. Women are just as gifted at men at teaching. They're just as smart as men. I mean, the Bible never says anything like men are smarter or anything like that. And, and he says, it, and oftentimes women are better at the things that go into being a pastor. You know, they can be organized. They're often more committed to the church. They're often more dependable and things like that. That's often why women move into leadership roles in the church. But uh, what Lewis says is the problem is that even though men and women are both symbolic of God as image bearers, the Bible consistently refers to God as him. He is our father in heaven. And I want to read you, this is a little longer quote, but this is from Lewis's essay, and this is what he says about this. He says, suppose the reformer, so Lewis says it's very logical, but he thinks it's, it's the wrong move. So this is what he says. Suppose the reformer stops saying that a, uh, that a good woman may be like God and begins to say that God is like a good woman. Suppose he says that we might just as well pray to our mother which art in heaven as to our father. Suppose he suggests that the incarnation might just as well have taken a female as a male form and the second person of the Trinity might as well be called the daughter as the son. Suppose finally that the mystical marriage were reversed, that the church were the bridegroom and Christ the bride. All this, as it seems to me, is involved in the claim that a man can or a woman can represent God as a priest does. Now it is surely the case that if all these supposals were ever carried into effect, we should be embarked on a different religion. Goddesses have, of course, been worshipped. Many religions have priestesses, but they are religions quite different in character from Christianity. But Christians think that God himself has taught us how to speak of him. A child who has been taught to pray to a mother in heaven would have a religious life radically different from that of a Christian child. I think this is an important line here. 
It says, and as image, as symbols, and apprehension, our understanding, symbols and our understanding, are in an organic unity. So for a Christian, our human body and human soul, the innovators are really implying that sex is something superficial, irrelevant to the spiritual life. And what Lewis is saying is that we cannot erase these things. God communicates himself to us as a father. And, um, and he says we are missing something when we try to erase that and say that that doesn't matter. And so that is the first resolution, to include more men and women in the leading of our congregation during the portions that represent the people responding to God and his grace, but to maintain that God should be represented by ordained elders and deacons. Okay, so that's the first resolution. Second resolution, we want to encourage the women with teaching gifts to use those gifts in our church for the building up of both men and women in our congregation. And what I mean by that is that we are saying that when the Bible says things like this, this is from 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. We understand that those verses are in the context. Uh, the context of those verses is limited to the symbolic acts in the worship service. That moment in the teaching of the worship service where God's, that is God's authorized announcement of his word. Because one of the things that we see in the Bible is other places where the Bible clearly says that women not only taught men, but women actually taught church leaders. You know, the most famous example of that is in Acts 18, where it says that Priscilla and Aquila trained Apollos. Apollos is one of the great teachers of the early church. And he learned about the gospel from Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's name comes first, which suggests that she's the primary teacher. It's like she's teaching a seminary class. And it means that if women can teach seminary classes, we should be expecting to hear more from women in our workshop classes, in our leadership trainings, speakers that we invite to address our community. And some of you might think, well, that's obvious. Of course I'd learn from a woman. Why wouldn't I learn from a woman? And I commend you for that. But uh, some of our women might say, you know, I, I don't want to step over my bounds. I know the Bible says things about women not teaching a man. I don't want anyone to think that I'm, you know, grabbing control of things. And so what that says is, well, we need to encourage women. We need to see their gifts. We want to say we want to learn from you. We want to open those doors. And uh, so that's something that we need to do together as a congregation. Okay, so those are our resolutions. Let me say one last closing word. Because some of you might say, wow, this is all so complicated. This is, the passages are complicated. The description is complicated. My answer to that is that truth is complicated. You know, I, I was a mathematician before I was a pastor. Math problems, you always want them to have a simple solution. They don't. And especially the most important math problems. They always have some crazy journey that they take you on. And on the journey to get the proof, you learn a tremendous amount of things along the way. God made his world that way. Nature, science is complicated. If you own a business and you say, well, it should be simple to run a business, it is not simple. You're going to make all kinds of mistakes. You're going to be journeying along and you're going to learn all kinds of things along the way. And look at what God just did for us. It wasn't a simple answer. Think of all the things that we talked about. We talked about our culture. We talked about, you know, hair and theology and worship. And he took us on this long journey to reflect on all these things because gender is a mystery. Male and female are mysteries 
that we should be slow to tamper with. They're things beyond our understanding. We approach them with humility, believing that these strange symbolic, this strange symbolic world of male and female will lead us to behold the goodness and beauty of our God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you take us on these journeys through these strange passages. You have things to say to us. We believe that. We pray for the culture of our church that this would be a church where both men and women have opportunities to use their gifts the ways that you have intended them to and have called them to. Um, help us to be a body that is using the grace that has been given to us to build one another up. Help us also to honor the truth of your word and uh, that we would submit to it, we would believe in its truth and also see its goodness and beauty. We give ourselves to you as your servants in Christ's name. Amen.